Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 130 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we'll be talking with Stephanie Domas, and she is the VP of Research and Development over at MedSec LLC. She's got a great story around how she got involved with hacking and a lot of great insight into the industry. So as always, hope you guys enjoy this episode, and we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment, as usual, to thank all the incredible sponsors and supporters here at Conquering Columbus. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Stephanie Domas with us. And Stephanie is a driven leader and respected industry authority in healthcare and device cybersecurity. Her passion for cybersecurity, secure product design, and healthcare has earned her industry recognition and presentations at dozens of cybersecurity and healthcare conferences around the country. And in her current role as Vice President of Research and Development at MedSec, she leads business strategy, engineering, and research teams to deliver service and product offerings that help the healthcare community meet the unique challenges of cybersecurity in the medical fields and devices. And before MedSec, Stephanie spent time in a variety of roles in the cybersecurity space, and she graduated from Ohio State with a degree in electrical and computer engineering, and we're really excited to have her here today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Stephanie. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's always fun to end the day with a podcast. I say that a lot, but I really do enjoy ending my day talking with people from around Columbus. But kind of where we like to start is kind of kick it back and talk a little bit about kind of your path to where you are today. Maybe life as a kid, childhood, college, and kind of how you got to MedSec. And that's a lot to unpack, so feel free to start wherever you want. Yeah, I'll take a a slight tilt on that. One of the things that I almost always get asked is just how did I get into hacking computers and devices? And people always find it interesting that it actually all started with video games. Um, I was a video game nerd from a very young age, and I used to find these cheats online about a code you could enter or something you could do that would cause a cheat in the game. And it just fascinated me of how do people figure these out? And that really drove me to try and figure out, well, how are video games working? How does the computer work? And then how can I use that knowledge to then hack my own video games? So it actually all started with more of a curiosity about how do I win at video games at a young age? And that sort of blossomed into the, the path I followed was really I always just wanted to know how did all of this stuff work? And once I know that knowledge, how can I use that to hack it and manipulate it? So that's kind of what drove me from a very young age is just how does it work and how do I manipulate it? And did you grow up here right in Columbus? or? Yep, I grew up in Upper Arlington, actually, so suburb of Columbus. So the Ohio State decision was pretty easy. Did you think about any other colleges when you were uh, looking at universities? Or? I briefly looked at Case Western, but the amount of snow actually scared me away from that. <laughs> Um, and most of my family and extended family are all Ohio State alums, so I kind of grew up being indoctrinated into OSU football, and it just sort of felt wrong if I didn't go to OSU. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So what, what video games are we talking here? Um, I mean, we're stuck in old-school console games. I don't know if you recall things like the Game Shark, where it was actually something <laughs> you'd put the video yeah. game into, and that came preloaded with all of these modifications that it would make to the code, and it was just fascinating to me, how do they know what modifications they make to make to the code so that I can cheat at this video game? <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I had a Game Shark when I was a kid, too, so uh, just, I was just curious there. And so you get to Ohio State and computer engineering, electrical engineering. Uh, you know, was it a pretty male-dominated field at the time? Were you probably one yeah. of very few females in the, uh, in the department? It was. Most of my classes, I was the only female. And... I believe in my graduating class there was a total of three of us, but we were in between the three of us in that degree. We almost never saw each other, so most of my classes were I was the only female. Okay, and was that I mean was that like a different experience for you, or is that you know kind of in college did that affect you at all? At that point, I was kind of used to it because even in high school when I took all the computer science classes, I was on the robotics team. I was the only female in any of those, so my hobbies had been pretty male dominated for a long time. Uh, Part of it, I think, it didn't phase me very much because I grew up with about 10 male cousins and no female cousins, so I think I was really just used to it, so mm-hmm. it kind of never phased me. So what year do you wrap up at Ohio State? 2009. Okay, and you get done, and then what different options do you explore? Um, like, what was going through your mind at that point? Did you know exactly where you wanted to be, and did you have it mapped out? I didn't. I knew, um, I kind of had this side hobby of, you know, the video game stuff, but then... I didn't really understand how that would work in the real world. So what I was really looking for in the commercial space in a real job was just getting to work with computers at a low level. So I didn't back then understand that cybersecurity was really a career I could go after. It wasn't a major that Ohio State had. So my electrical and computer 
focused at Ohio State, I actually focused in like processor design, so how do processors work? And I was really just looking for a job in how processors worked. So I happened to get lucky to find Battelle Memorial Institute, which is right next to Ohio State, and it's a large research and development organization. And I found the, the idea of research really fit me well. I really didn't want to just go with the status quo. I didn't want to follow processes and inventions that were already out, I wanted to make new discoveries. So doing research in the computer field was a really good fit for me. And those are kind of uh, two words that for at least for me in my head feel awkward to put together. So research in the computer field, like what does research mm -hmm. on computers look like and what does that entail? Yeah, so it started out very much kind of here's a technological problem and we have all these different, here's a different chip that does this and here's a different sensor that does this. How can we build something that hasn't been built before? So one of the original projects I worked on at Battelle was doing a technology refresh on the UH-60 Black Hawk helicopters. So those helicopters, they didn't want to have to buy all new helicopters, but most of the parts in them were very old and failing and built with old technology, and they didn't have the specifications for them anymore. So they would actually give us just these big boxes out of these Black Hawk helicopters and say, well, this controls the relay panels figure out how it works, and then build it with new technology so that it works the same and we can simply put it in a Black Hawk helicopter and have it still work. So it actually kind of married that idea of what we now call reverse engineering, uh, figuring out how does this thing even work, and then how can I build something that works just like it with new technology. So it still very was, much was kind of research, um, just kind of a different angle on it. You kind of Sounds like it fit your personality well. I mean, you'd been reverse engineering these different things you're using as a kid throughout your entire childhood and up into that part of your life. Um, what was that experience like, and how long did it last for you? Like, how long did you stay in that role? I stayed at Battelle for um, eight years, but my time there, it very much, I, I kind of varied through roles. So that group was the only time I spent really doing kind of unclassified work. Um, after about a year in the unclassified space, then I transitioned into classified work and classified research. Um, and I was there for about six years until I transitioned then into the medical device space, which then became unclassified again. And so it was still, it was always that kind of reverse engineering mentality and how can I use this knowledge to, you know, either design new systems or make systems better. It's just what I was applying it to changed. So that classified work, um, is there anything at all that you can talk about in that, or is it pretty much all, you know, closed off? Mostly closed off, just knowing that it, like, it was still research in the cybersecurity space. That was really when I started to focus on this whole idea of cybersecurity and trying to actually look at the security of a system and either attacking it to try and make the system better or attacking it to try and find weaknesses in it that we could use. And so you were, you were actually going in and hacking these devices in the different technology associated, right? That, was that something that you were, I mean, you enjoyed? Oh yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, you can think of it, you really have to like puzzles um, for that kind of a work because you're trying to reverse engineer something that you have no documentation for and that they didn't want you to reverse engineer. And so it is very much puzzles. There's a lot of rabbit holes that lead to nowhere where you spend months looking at something that ends up being absolutely nothing. And uh, so it can be a lot of frustration, but when you finally figure it out, it is such a cool payoff. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious because, like, I hear hacking, right, and I hear mm -hmm. these different things, but I have no idea what that yeah. process entails, right? Like, are we sending a signal into the device? Are we 
you know, put, putting some piece of code to try and change the way it behaves? Like, how does that process even work? Yes, it really depends on kind of what what hacking situation you're in and where, I would say, where your hacking specialization is. The one that gets the most media attention is more web hacking, so people who attack websites, which is not the type of hacking I did. Um, mine is more specialized in what we call lower level, so under the operating system actually attacking the processor. So when you're doing that kind of attack, what you're really trying to do is kind of circumvent all the security controls on the computer. So you think of when you try to install something, uh, Windows will typically ask you, you know, do you want to grant permission to this app? It's trying to protect you. Windows is trying to say, give you an opportunity to not allow something to run that you didn't authorize. But when you get lower level, you simply bypass all of that. So that was usually the goal, was how can you do something that a user didn't authorize um, and without them knowing about it? Okay. So I was listening to a podcast recently on a similar space, and they were talking about specifically with cars going the direction they are, mm -hmm. um, you know, the different ways that people can hack into a car. And they mentioned that there's two different ways, right? Like if it's connected to the internet, you can hack in through the web, but if you had 30 minutes or so with the car, you know, what could somebody do? Are you installing hardware on some of these devices or is it mainly? Yeah, so it depended. So I'll, I'll kind of shift to the medical device context since that's what I focused on the last couple of years. So in the med device space, you're really you're worried about those two types of attacks of if it's remotely connected so it's on the internet what could somebody do to a patient halfway around the world um, or if they had hands-on physical access what could they do to the system and in general you're less worried about them kind of installing new hardware what you're more worried about them is making software modifications or simply changing configuration on the system um, so we've seen demonstrations of people who could remotely um, drain the battery of somebody's pacemaker to require what should have been a five-year battery life to now last just a few months, um, which requires the patient to go back in and have surgery. So that could that was demonstrated to be able to remotely. Um, there's also been attacks like insulin pump attacks where if somebody's a diabetic and they have an insulin pump kind of attached to them, those pumps can be set to deliver certain doses at certain times. They will beep to alert the person that their glucose is getting low. Um, but there have been attacks shown that if you're within five feet of somebody with those devices, you can either deliver insulin that they didn't approve or you can actually turn the system off so they no longer get alarms. Um, and if that's something they're accustomed to, relying on an alarm, suddenly they're going to have some glucose problems because they don't realize that their device has been turned off. How real is this threat? I mean, obviously, like, it's uh, it's something that's happening that can happen. You've mm -hmm. shown and you've, you've seen situations. But what's the frequency like? Is it something that's happening, like, very common and people just don't, are talking about it? or? So what we're seeing the most of right now that gets publicly disclosed is attackers attacking medical devices for the purposes of stealing patient data. So we haven't seen any publicly known example of an attacker actually trying to cause patient harm. Um, but I would also say if that had happened, it would be really hard to figure that out. Um, if something goes wrong in a hospital and someone's med device is misconfigured, it is really hard to, to determine if that happened because of a cyber attack on the system. Um, and, and frankly, that type of forensics is simply not done, typically, if a patient's treatment goes poorly. Nobody isolates that device. No one sends it to a cyber expert to see what happened on it. Um, so if it has happened, maybe it has. 
I think realistically the data is more valuable than attacking an individual patient with the exception of maybe a celebrity. Um, so what we have actually seen a number of attacks trying to steal patient data because that patient data is actually very valuable and then they go and sell it on the dark web. What kind of things can people do with patient data? So the patient data is really interesting because attackers used to focus on financial data because things like your credit card, it used to be valuable, but now it's the average credit card number goes for about $2 on the dark web now. It's actually pretty cheap, and that's because it's so easy for people to cancel their credit cards, um, and the banks simply drop those charges. So credit card number's not as valuable. But a personal health record has your insurance information, your social security information, your employer, where you live, all the information that they would need to either get high-priced narcotics on your insurance, get medical treatment on your insurance, or apply for new bank loans. They have all of your information now. Um, and things like your social security number, your address, your employer, you can't just call the bank and say, my identity's been compromised, please change all of this information. So that information now goes for say 15 to $20 per record, substantially more valuable than a health record. Uh, there's some examples recently of um, if you're coming to the US from China, for example, you have to have a clean lung scan. So not just a visit, if you're actually trying to like immigrate or get a work visa here, you have to show a clean lung scan. So clean lung scans are actually going for a high amount on the dark web for people who want to come to the United States and don't actually have a clean lung scan. So there's a lot of just kind of peripheral things you wouldn't think of in a health record that actually has a lot of value. Yeah, and I feel like we've kind of skipped ahead here. <laughs> uh, so maybe we'll take a step back sure. before we uh, continue down that rabbit hole and, and talk a little bit about So how long did you spend at Battelle? You said like eight years. When, what's the time frame there? Yeah, so 2009 until December of 2017. Okay, okay. And then from there, where, where do you go next? Yeah, so that's then I transitioned over to MedSec. Okay, and, and, and that would have been a couple years ago now. So what has that transition been like for you? I mean, from the you know the space of Battelle and research and development into the healthcare space was there was there a lot mm -hmm. into that change not a tremendous amount so the last two years that I was at Battelle I was focused in healthcare so the the subject space stayed the same it was more of an expansion of sort of my purview into it and my role at Battelle I was specifically focused on the medical devices and designing secure medical devices at MedSeg, we still do that. We work with medical device manufacturers to design secure medical devices, but now we also work with hospitals to help them maintain the medical devices that they have in their network because that's actually a, a really big struggle for hospitals right now. And how has your role personally changed uh, in regards to what you were doing at Battelle to what you're doing now? Like, is there more um, high-level management? You talk about strategy as yeah, well. Absolutely. Is, is that involved or are you still diving into the weeds on things? For the most part now, I no longer play a technical role on the projects. I oversee them from a technical review perspective, but I'm not the one hacking devices anymore. I'm overseeing the teams that do that. So I'm much more on the management side, the strategy side, so now I'm running the teams that do all of that work, but I'm still interfacing with the customers a lot. I still have to be able to talk the talk, and I still present at a number of conferences on the topic, so I try to keep my technical chops up. I do technical stuff in my free time, but my role at MedSec is no longer technical. Do you miss the hacking? That's where like my hobbies kind of keep that 
fresh for me. Right. Um, so I still do that kind of stuff in my free time. Um, I still presented a number of security conferences that just have nothing to do with medical, where I'm really just doing it for the fun of it. What's one that you've presented at most recently? So I presented, um, let's see, a couple weeks ago at a conference called DerbyCon in Louisville. And that, comp that presentation was an introduction to x86, which is the underlying machine code that your laptop speaks, any any laptop actually speaks. Um, and that, that had nothing to do with medical devices, but x86 is what my specialization is. That's the what your processor is speaking under the hood. And are there any particular topics around that that uh, are big concerns today? Like are there a lot of hacking going on with that device? or? The biggest concern right now I have with x86 is that it seems to be a kind of a dying language in schools. Schools don't really teach it anymore. And the, the reason that concerns me is because under the hood, all of our laptops, all of our servers still run on x86. Anytime somebody writes a website, anytime somebody writes an application, but they write it in higher level languages that are more advanced, when they build it into something that can actually run on the computer, it gets translated into x86. And we're, we're losing that knowledge where there are not developers out there now that understand x86, so they can't understand the security implications and how attackers attack x86. So we're losing that knowledge because schools are really not focusing on it anymore. They view it as kind of an antiquated thing, despite the fact that all of our servers and all of our computers still run on it. So my kind of evangelistic presentations at these conferences are always introductions to x86, their trainings on x86. I'm trying to get security people to still know and understand x86 so it doesn't go out of existence because I think it's really key to making secure systems. Any other topics besides, or I mean, including what's going on at MedSec or even outside of that that you're giving some conference talks on that really stick out to you and concern you uh, moving forward in the future? Really just building on kind of what I was just alluding to, I've spoken at a couple of just educational conferences recently about trying to actually get things like computer science and specifically cybersecurity taught in schools, grade schools. There's a struggle right now to even get computer science programs in grade schools, let alone cybersecurity programs. And it's not actually from a funding perspective. There's a number of schools that would love to have these programs. They actually can't find teachers. Because it's such a highly sought after skill, the problem is if you know cybersecurity, you can make two or three times as much in the commercial space versus education. So it's really hard for them to find anyone willing to come teach those topics because they have to be willing to take a substantial pay cut to go into the education space. So that's another big struggle that worries me and I don't have a good answer for that because I mean, it's such a huge pay cut to go into education. Right, right. I guess what I'm curious about with the x86 uh, piece is, you know, in terms of the problem, the underlying issue, can we not just, like it would be too much of an undertaking to update all of our servers and devices to a more advanced uh, language? That's actually the interesting thing is x86 is one of the most advanced assembly languages out there. Chips, so it's your processor that's running x86. The x86 language is actually one of the most featureful assembly languages. Things like your phone run an assembly language called ARM, which is actually very limited, and it's limited because of the power usage of phones. You want your battery life to last long. If you put an x86 chip in your phone, your battery would die in probably an hour. 
So x86 is actually the most advanced assembly language out there, and I think we won't see it disappearing anytime soon. Those are the most powerful processors. So they're powerful. It's not like they're antiquated technology. It just seems like schools seem to be treating them that way. Um, I have adjuncted at Ohio State for a number of years now teaching what they call Systems 1. And they taught, Systems 1 is supposed to cover general assembly languages. And when I teach it, much to, much to my students' chagrin, I make them learn x86. And a number of students do not appreciate that because it is substantially harder than just learning general assembly ideas, which is what the class is supposed to cover. But it's another one of those cases where like, I just I want the next generation of people turning out software to understand how, the, how computers actually work. Um, so I get a number of students who readily complain that I'm forcing them to learn antiquated language uh, despite me trying to explain to them that this is in everything that they use for computing, they still view it as useless knowledge. Sure. Do you think it's because, like, they're not, so, like, today, right, everything's in software and applications and design mm -hmm. and, like, all these big, these big names like Facebook and Twitter and all these big companies are not, I'm, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I could be completely off base here, but those aren't programmed in x86, right, at all. Those are programmed in a different language, and then it just translates it to mm -hmm. the device, so they see that as, like, well, that's already done. Is that kind of the That is some of the mentality. I think some of the mentality is also they don't understand what kind of jobs they could get with x86 knowledge. So it's, I was in the same position they were in college where you really don't have a good understanding of what skills actually get you what different jobs. And I think it's, it's a different struggle that I also don't have a good answer for, that if students could understand that a, a knowledge or an efficiency of x86 actually could get them a tremendous number of high-paying jobs because there are so few people who understand it. Me having x86 on my LinkedIn results in recruiter reach outs repeatedly. I mean, every week I'm getting something because it is such an obscure thing, but it's in everything. So an, being a master of x86 would absolutely still get you a job at Facebook, at Google. It's just people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. So transitioning back to MedSec, mm -hmm. what are some of the uh, big goals and initiatives that you have looking out maybe over the next one, five, ten years? Like, what really gets you excited looking forward to the future? Yeah, so MedSec right now, I, I kind of mentioned we work on both sides of the fence where we work with medical device manufacturers to help them design more secure medical devices. But then we also work with hospitals to help them maintain the security of connected medical devices they have. And what I'm really excited about is trying to bring those two together. That's one of the one of the several hats that I wear in my role is overseeing the teams that work on both sides. A lot of it is trying to figure out where do I see collaboration efforts? Where do I see the big struggles that hospitals are having? And then how can I feed that into working with the manufacturers so they can make medical devices that are easier for hospitals to maintain? Because both groups are very much siloed right now. And it's very surprising when you hear the types of struggles the manufacturers have and then you explain those to the hospitals and it's very eye-opening for them. They didn't realize that that was a struggle the manufacturers were having and then vice versa. So I'm really excited about actually trying to bring those two together. It's a very unique perspective at MedSec because we work with both sides. It's very unique. Most companies don't. Um, other cybersecurity consulting firms usually work with one side or the other. So us concentrating on both is actually allowing us to bring a lot of lessons learned back and forth. So I'm hoping that that just 
brings up the whole bar of cybersecurity and healthcare that we're able to keep working and spreading the message and just making med devices more secure because I don't want to get to a point where people are afraid to get healthcare because they're afraid of their identity getting stolen just by going to the hospital. What does that engagement look like when you're connecting those two together? Like, where do you even start with something like that? Like, you can definitely identify where the hole is, but you can't, uh, it's not super intuitive to understand, like, what mm-hmm. spectrum you would start in. Right. Some of it's an educational thing, and actually a fair amount of it has been where I can see these struggles on both sides, and I presented a lot of conferences trying to make everyone understand the problem set. So I will go to conferences that are predominantly hospitals and attendants and explain to them the position that the medical device manufacturers are in, and it's very eye-opening for them. A lot of them don't appreciate the struggles the manufacturers are having. And then I will go to conferences predominantly attended by medical device manufacturers and explain the hospital side because you sit in these you know the networking sessions and you just hear both side kind of trashing the other of why don't they just do this and why don't they just fix this and to actually explain to them why they don't fix that and there's actually usually very legitimately good reasons why they don't fix that um, has been really helpful and then I offer to introduce them to you know hey would you actually like to talk to this manufacturer who's trying to tackle this they would love to hear your side of it and hear you know, how you would like them to do this. So a lot of it is education, attending a lot of conferences, and then actually just when we work with the manufacturers or when we work with the hospitals, trying to kind of build the right ecosystem, try to build med- medical ma- medical devices that we know are going to be easier for hospitals to maintain, and then try to work with hospitals to set up programs that make it so they buy more secure medical devices, they have routine maintenance on their medical devices so things don't get kind of chaotic because they left a device for five years in a closet and now it's completely insecure and they put it on their network. What about team structure and company size? Like, do you see the team growing in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. MedSec was founded in 2015, so we're still relatively small. We're at at 30 people, um, depending on kind of what stage we're in and what contractors we have at the time. we are hoping to grow substantially. We have our a product that we launched in March, which is medical device asset management called MedScan. So it's actually specifically for hospitals to run this piece of software to help them manage medical devices. So that's starting to get really popular. So with the growth of that, that development team needs to grow tremendously. Um, we're hoping to open more test labs. Right now we have test labs in Miami, Florida, and Athens, Greece which helps us service most of the world, but it'd be great to open some test labs in other locations so it's easier for us to help manufacturers around the world. And then what do some of your clients look like? Do they normally stick with you for um, an extended period of time or is it like consistently adding new clients or is it in and out every single year? It's both. Um, we're always adding new clients, and but at the same time we do a lot of repeat work, which is really the best testament for the fact that we're doing a good job is almost all of our customers don't just have one engagement. We almost always have repeat engagements with them. What about your own personal goals for the next mm-hmm. five, 10 years? You know, you talked about the goals of the company, but what about you? What do you want to do here in the next five, 10 years? So part of my, you know, part of my motivation in taking this role was one, I actually legitimately want to have an impact in the healthcare community. I want to make it more secure. I want to use my powers for good. <laughs> but I also wanted to personally develop into 
understanding how you would actually run a cybersecurity business. So being in that VP role now, I mentioned I don't really do tech work anymore, but I do a lot more behind the scenes of looking at how are we getting funding, how are we you know, restructuring, how do we do bonus programs, how do we, it's a lot more of the how does the business run. So I hope to keep expanding that, and so the leadership side of it, I would love to just keep expanding my purview on how do you actually run a company, um, and specifically a cybersecurity company, because it, I think it makes more powerful. It's not just running a company, it's running one in a subject area that I happen to be an expert in. Do you ever see yourself trying to branch out and do your own thing in the future, or do you always see yourself as part of a larger organization? I'm really not sure. The problem is at the VP level, I feel like, you have a big impact on internal policy, and that's the that's what I like. To go higher, you're looking at like a CEO level. CEOs, they're very important, but they're much more focused on the external perspective, and they rely on people at my level to handle a lot of the internal things. And every CEO runs companies a little different, but most of the CEOs that I've had chances to talk to, they spend a lot of time talking to external it's they are look, talking to investors they are talking to the board they're they're more focused on keeping the company kind of just charging in the right direction from that high level and they don't get a chance to actually sit down and try to come up with things like business strategy or how are we going to run our development teams and that doesn't actually interest me as much. I actually prefer being internally focused and seeing how it can actually impact the company internally, the people that are working inside of the company. So I want to keep expanding my leadership goals, but I don't know that a CEO role is actually something that I want to move to soon because I like being actually more in the nitty-gritty and how are we actually running internally. And it's interesting. you know. I think that you have a lot of great insight in yourself and the way that you want to do things in terms of um, you know, wanting to run things internally or getting into computers because you enjoyed hacking your games as a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that I think a lot of young professionals struggle with is finding the right role or finding things that they're passionate about. Do you have any advice for our listeners out there who might be struggling with similar things? Yeah, this is actually another thing. I, I, I try to do a lot of mentorship programs too, specifically typically with female engineers, um, but just in general mentorship programs that try to get people to accept that if if they're looking around and they want to learn a new skill but they can't see how to do it just make those opportunities most of my roles throughout Battelle for example me leading and founding their medical device security program that didn't exist there wasn't an open job rec for it I actually wanted to expand my my role and I tried to look around and see well here's the things I want to learn here's an area that I think I could apply it to. And I started reaching out to people saying, you know what, we should start looking at medical device security. And before you knew it, I was putting together a business plan to pitch to Patel's board. And that was all because I didn't see a way to learn the skills I wanted, so I made a way. Um, and that's been kind of the theme throughout most of my career is you could actually look at most of the roles I held at previous companies. They weren't there beforehand. I kind of made the role because I wanted to expand what I was doing. I didn't sit back and just wait for a role to open. Uh, I made the role by just poking people and saying, hey, I want to lead a task. Let me do this. Hey, now I want to lead a team. Let me do this. And I, that's a really great perspective. I think it's important to, to have for anybody, um, regardless, you know, male, female, whoever out there. That's a really, really great perspective to have on, on your career. Um, I think 
Stephanie, that's a great place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that as our phrase, what do you think of when you hear it, and how can you apply it to your life and career? Yeah, so I actually, I love that motto, and I used to have this big, uh, like, poster I had behind my desk that just said, try harder. And I loved that because every part of research, every part of cybersecurity, it's not easy. Um, if it was easy, well, one, it wouldn't pay so well. Right. <laughs> um, but aside from that, it wouldn't be fun. If I'm not being challenged, I would be bored. So I loved having that sticker, and it was, it was for offensive security. It said, offensive security, try harder. And it was just that mentality that you will not be good and you will not succeed in cybersecurity if you are not okay with things being hard. Uh, and so I, I love that. I love your slogan of live uncomfortably because if, it's, if my day was not hard, then I wouldn't be doing cybersecurity. And then maybe just add one last question. It kind of sparks something in my head. Like when you were talking, when you say try harder and like your mindset seems to be very growth oriented, it seems like um, I would assume if we sat down even longer, we would understand that you probably look at a lot of things and you can stop me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but you look at a lot of things that um, I probably, you probably don't think many things are impossible, I guess I would assume. So right. when you take that approach to reverse engineering these systems and trying to troubleshoot them and hack things, I'm assuming that probably comes into play as a valuable skill. When you're trying to hire people with that mindset so they can do the same for you, what does that look like? Like, How do you evaluate people in the hiring process to figure out if they have what it takes to um, have the right mindset for the job? Yeah, it's actually very interesting because I, in hiring, I will take someone with a passion of, for curiosity and a passion for, as you stated, making themselves uncomfortable over somebody who had skills but doesn't seem to have the drive to challenge themselves. Um, I've interviewed a number of people who it seemed like they knew a lot, but when you asked, you know, what, what are your hobbies? What do you do for fun? They weren't actually passionate about cybersecurity. They weren't actually passionate about computers. And that's okay. It's great that they have that skill set. But hands down, I would take a person who had the passion and the curiosity and liked to challenge themselves, but maybe didn't have the skill set yet. I would take that person hands down over the person who had skill and no curiosity. And is just asking about their hobbies kind of how you dig that out of them typically? Or are there certain things that you find that you ask people? It is. Kind of... It's kind of, you know, what are their hobbies? What websites do they like to read? Um, you know, what tech blogs do they visit? Things like that kind of show somebody who's got a passion for it they breathe this stuff. They're always visiting tech blogs. They want to hear about the latest development kits that are out there. They want to hear about the latest vulnerabilities and attacks that publicize. They really do have a passion for it. So it's somewhat their hobbies and also kind of asking, you know, how they got into it. So me having that passion for hacking video games, that was a curiosity that I followed and that kind of shows drive. Whereas people who say, well, I took a class on this and it seemed interesting. That's an okay way to start, but if that's where all your experience came from and you've never done anything beyond that class, like if that did not spark a flame that then caused you to go look up or experiment on your own, then you kind of fall into that category where you may have some skill, but you didn't have the motivation or drive to try and learn any more of it on your own. Well, Stephanie, I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Thanks a lot for joining us. We've had a lot of fun today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. That was Stephanie Domas talking about everything they've got going on over at MedSec and cybersecurity in the healthcare and medical device space. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. We'll talk to you next week.
Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.